0: Well, it is a strange time. Who would have thought two Sundays before Christmas we would have so few in person? It's just weird, isn't it? It's just so weird. But God is on his throne, and we're grateful that we can stream, and we're grateful for God's grace in among us for the way he continues to work in our community. Uh, Last week, we started the look of Christmas sermons by taking a look at... um, the genealogy and the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I know genealogies are aren't necessarily your favorite part of scripture. I mentioned last week that I first encounter with a Dallas seminary student was when I was in college at the John E. Mitchell Company working on a factory line and he was memorizing genealogy and I t- said to myself, help me never be a seminary student if that's what seminary students do. It just was not something that got me real pumped. You know what I'm saying? It's just. But yet as you look at the genealogy of Matthew you realize that Matthew is sending us a signal because of the, the nature of that group of people. They are broken. They are, includes people who have done horrible things. It includes people who are Gentile and not Jewish. It, it says so much about what the Messiah will do because who he comes from. And, and Matthew is clearly going out of his way to make that point, and we can see that especially because of the women he highlights, which typically wouldn't be done. And and we walked away with a realization of just how much God works in ways that are unexpected. The, the Jewish people were clearly waiting for the Messiah to come. It was the focal point of who they were and, and what made them the Jewish people. And yet, he did it in so many ways that defied their expectations because he did it through a genealogy that was a mess. And um, he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, an outcast. There are just so many things that would have been a shock to the senses of a first century uh, Jewish person as you read this. And you realize that Matthew, in the most Jewish of the Gospels, is, is trying to break through to the Jewish leader to help them see how Jesus fulfilled all of those Old Testament promises and, and how significant he was in light of the Old Testament and He goes out of his way to point out fulfillment of Old Testament literature and he emphasizes the messianic role of Christ as king. And that that authority as sovereign, as king, is one of the themes that we'll see through the book of Matthew. Luke, on the other hand, is is, uh, uh, a gospel much more directed at, at the common person. It's directed to the concerns of the poor and the oppressed. It, It has a different emphasis. It's not so Jewish. It is much more concerned about those who long for the work of the gospel. And so in Luke, when he describes the story of the Christmas, he tells about the shepherds who would come. Because in the first century, shepherds were not exactly de- considered desirable. Shepherds were considered outcasts in society. They lived out there, and let's face it, they, they smelled like sheep, which makes them not the first people you invite to your Christmas parties, right? I mean, they were... They were typically men who lived in isolation and and were often viewed as suspect because they believed that they would come in and steal and those kind of things. So Luke's emphasis, he chooses to tell the story of the shepherds who of all people had an angelic host come and announce the birth of Christ because Luke's message is to show the unlikely nature of a Messiah who would come to all people, all strata of society, whether Jew or Gentile, whether poor or rich, that that Luke wants us to see that breadth of the Lord's ministry. Matthew, on the other hand today, will look and he emphasizes the Magi. I don't believe uh, some writers have said it's really the same group of people. They they change their their occupations to fit their themes. That's nonsense. The reality is it's very clearly two different groups of people. Uh, Luke emphasizes the shepherds because it is the group that helps him make the point he's making, whereas Matthew emphasizes the magi because he's making another point. So today in the first 12 verses of of Matthew chapter 12, we're going to look at the story of the magi. And if you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. In the first two verses, he just says there was a disturbance in the sky. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, referring back to chapter 1, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There's a lot going on in there. Jesus first is born in Bethlehem because it is the city of David. It's a small community, about four, five, six miles south of Jerusalem. If you go to Israel and we go into Bethlehem, one of the things you're struck by is today it's under Palestinian control. You have to go through security checkpoints. And if you have a Jewish guide, they typically get off the bus because they'd rather not be in the Palestinian section. And the church of the nativity is there, an ancient uh, church in which um, different Christian traditions believe that it housed the cave in which Jesus was born. In fact, it was as early as the second century that Christians believed that they could isolate which cave Jesus was born. Uh, so the, the nature of that Bethlehem location has been a part of Christian tradition for a long, long time. Uh, why Bethlehem? Because it's the city of David. And as I mentioned, the whole point of the genealogy, one of the major points of the genealogy is that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the son of David, about whom the promise in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant made that he would be a king that would rule eternally. And so Jesus had to be born there to make the connection to the Davidic promise more clear. And it says, during the time of King Herod. This is Herod who in all humility called himself Herod the Great. Uh, I tried that at home, didn't go so well. uh, Herod the Great was an incredibly significant uh, character in the ancient Near Middle East. Um, He took control of the land of Israel in around 40 uh, BC and he reigned until his death in approximately 4 BC, depending on what accounts you believe. Um, he was brilliant politician. He was half descendant of Edomite or the, uh, uh, the descendants of Esau and half Jewish. He was therefore not fully accepted as a Jew throughout his time. He, he was a brilliant politician who learned better than anyone in the history how to manage the nation of Israel and also manipulate the kingdom of Rome so that he lived in that in-between space in a very effective way. He accomplished some of the greatest building projects in the history of Israel, including the the temple in which Jesus would have worshiped in the first century, but also other magnificent sites that even today we can go to and see this is something that Herod built. Um, and, And he was also incredibly ruthless. Historians say that when he saw a threat to his kingdom, he just felt obligated. He killed his favorite wife. That's literally what they say. He murdered his favorite wife. Um, you just wonder what he'd do for the less than favorite wives, um, as well as her two sons. Uh, he was ruthless and was willing to do almost anything to keep control. In fact, um, he had manipulated the leadership of Israel the Sadducees the Sanhedrin so that they worked in concert with him because they had an unholy alliance that allowed both to have power but there was a horrible distrust between the two because everyone knew how evil he was and there appears what the bible calls magi now, magi are mentioned in the book of Daniel in unfavorable terms. They were, they were typically astrologers who were viewed as scientists of their days because in their days, science was mixed in religion. And, and so they believed that the stars could be used by the gods to inform the people of things that were going to happen. And even among the Jews, there was some expectation of that. So they would have studied the stars if they were from Persia, which is one of the very likely possibilities. They would have worked for the king of Persia, who also was uniquely humble, calling himself the king of kings. And the king of Persia would have paid them to watch the stars, to let him know what the stars might be indicating in foreign affairs. So it's possible that they were sent by the king of Persia to see if this king of the Jews would be born in case he would be a threat to Persia's rule throughout the land. We don't know if they were God-fearing, as you know, because of the two captivities of the northern and southern kingdom. There were many Jews that were in Babylon, the land of Babylon and Assyria to the east and north of Israel. And it may well be that they were familiar with the Old Testament prophecies of the nation of Israel so that it may well be that they had heard or they could have even been in Jewish extraction themselves and known about the promises that there would be a king. We just don't know. But somehow they were clued to the possibility that there would be a great king coming from Israel. And when they saw the star, they were convinced that it was the star indicating his birth. Now, that actually is an Old Testament reference because in Numbers chapter 24, I know many of you were reading Numbers devotionally just this morning. In Numbers chapter 24, there is a character named Balaam. Balaam is famous because his donkey corrected him. It's never good when your pets are smarter than you are. And, and, but Balaam was a prophet who was paid by a king to bring prophecies against the nation of Israel, but because he listened to God, he repeatedly gave prophecies that were positive to the nation of Israel. And on his fourth oracle, his fourth great prophecy, in, in Numbers chapter 24, read, listen, let me read to you what he says. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And he will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of the people of Sheth and Edom will be conquered and then he goes on to a ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. And the nation of Israel believed that that prophetic word was speaking of the Messiah so that it is consistent with their understanding of the Old Testament prophecy that when the Magi saw this star, they believed it was fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy and therefore an indication that the king of Israel was to be born. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it, how little scripture tells in those kind of details. Uh, I'm Convinced that sometimes we waste too much time speculating on exactly how it works and we would do better just to try to figure out how to live the part of Scripture that does tell us. And the point is that apparently by the work of God, these magi, these astrologers came to Israel looking for the king. In verse 3 through 8, that creates a disturbance. Oh, by the way, one other thing. Um, you know how in the song we always see, we three kings? You know why? Because Psalm 72, the psalm I read to you, refers to kings bowing before the Messiah. So they, the writer of the Christmas story, songs thought, well, that must be fulfillment of the kings. And why three because it was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But Scripture does indicate that the Messiah will one day rule in such a way that all powers will bow before him. Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or in earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So whether they're kings or not, the prophecy will yet be fulfilled completely. Um, verses 3 through 8, a disturbance in Jerusalem, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem disturbed with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Jerusalem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. They show up in Jerusalem because they're looking for the king of the Jews. And Jerusalem is the location of the king. And they begin to ask, on? where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod is disturbed because he's declared himself king. And there's only room for one king. So it's not surprising that it's disturbing to him. What's surprising is the next phrase. And all of Jerusalem was disturbed too. Has it ever caught you off guard that rather than there being a mass celebration of the possibility that the Messiah had come, instead they were disturbed? Why is that? Why is that? Well, for one thing, it's all not done the way they expected it. The ones announcing it weren't even Israelites. They were possibly even pagans. They were people who came from another land and and heavens. That shouldn't be who announces the Messiah. But I think as you read the book of Matthew, part of what you also see is that many in Israel really didn't want the messiah yet because things had worked out pretty good in fact literature says that they did expect the messiah at this point but they expected him to come later because right now we've got to deal with herod the sanhedrin is control and let's just not rock the boat i, I gotta I got to, to fully understand this you have to know a little bit more about herod When he knew his death was approaching in 4 B.C., he ordered as many as 2,000 significant people in, in the land to be rounded up and murdered at his death because he wanted to make sure that everyone was weeping at the time of his funeral. He was a horribly wicked man who was so hateful and so egomaniac that he had no concern at all for human life but only his own reputation and yet Israel's kind of made an alliance with him and grown used to him. Let me give you a free commercial no extra charge okay. Sometimes appropriately we get concerned about what's going on in our world around us because there's much that's going on that we're concerned about but but to listen to us you would you would think that we are experiencing unprecedented historic evil in america and the reality is when you look at history and look at other places we are still unbelievably blessed and if we don't take time to be grateful if we get so caught up in our dissatisfaction that we lose our gratitude that i think quite frankly well it's not where we should be uh, herod didn't mind killing people just to make sure people cried at his funeral what an incredible thing Uh, One historical writer said, you know, this is a star appearing, and and one of the beliefs in the ancient uh, first century is that if a comet came across the sky, that might mean that there was a new ruler. So one writer says that when a comet appeared in the first century, Nero had all of his potential rivals murdered just to make sure that none of them could take his place. And you don't have to read far in the 20th century to see atrocities, not just World War II and Hitler, but Idi Amin and Pol Pot and throughout the world and what's going on in Nigeria. The Fredheims are here. We, we dare not get so caught up in our hurt that we lose gratitude for how blessed we really are. Because then we're not grateful for our salvation and we're not careful in our prayer for people who really are experiencing horrible things. Now that was free, no charge. Where is he going to be born? Herod asked. And the religious leaders knew. Micah chapter five, verse two, which is quoted, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler. That's Micah five, two. And, and when the Magi were, appeared and Herod asked, the religious leaders immediately knew. And then who will shepherd my people? Israel may be from 2 Samuel 5. The king is shepherd is a theme that's in the prophets as well as the historical books. And Herod, because he's so evil, called the Magi and, and asked when he was born we'll see next week that Herod would order the murder of all the boys two years old and under in the area of Bethlehem and he wanted to make sure that he got the exact window of when they might live and he sent the magi on and said make sure you tell me when you find him so that I can worship him And you know what's shocking? The religious leaders know that he's to be born in Bethlehem. They know that the Magi have shown up. And none of them go with the Magi to see him. Isn't that crazy? If you were a first century Jew who had, who had had memorized the prophecies of the Old Testament, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, and had, had seen the prophecies of Isaiah about the Messiah, if you had studied this all your life, and then there is this report of a supernatural appearance of light in the sky, and these foreigners announcing their expectation of the birth of the king of the Jews, if all of this was occurring, and 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 you know where he's to be born, wouldn't you think at least the high priest would send somebody to go check it out? See, the irony is, Israel at this point, and Matthew wants us to see, was terribly religious. I mean, they were all about religion. They, they did temple worship. They tithed down to the table salt. On their table, they, they memorized all 613 uh, promise. I mean, commands of the Old Testament. And they had volumes of literature on how exactly they, to make sure you had obeyed it all. They knew the answers to all of the longer and shorter catechism. See, most of y'all didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church. You don't know what that means. but they didn't care about the Messiah because they were religious, but they weren't in love with God. See, in many ways, religion, doing religion can be a substitute for true faith. It it can be something that we do to make ourselves feel good, to elevate ourselves, to justify our existence, but, but lose the whole point of it, which is to know and love and obey God. And Matthew wants us to see that at the time of Jesus' birth, much of the Jewish population, had they were religious. They, they got that, but it, 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 it had no connection with reality because when they heard the Messiah might be born, they didn't even bother to go see. And men and women, we, we dare not get caught up in the lie that our religious activity is what God yearns for. God yearns for our love and that's why he sent his son to die on the cross and be resurrected to secure our eternal life and to give us the peace that religion never will and religion will never ever fulfill. Verses 9 through 12 there's a disturbance through a dream and after they had heard the king They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. By the way, there's all kinds of debate about what star is, that it was a convergence of Venus and Jupiter in the sky um, that occurred in in 7 BC. I I personally don't think that's it, because um, what I've read is that they would have still been the width of a moon apart. I don't think that would have shaken the ground quite that much, especially that it's hard to see how that would have guided them to Bethlehem. It's my personal conviction that it is a supernatural light. It's the Shekinah glory of God. That's consistent with the way God reveals himself throughout Scripture and that is consistent with the way he led the Magi to Bethlehem to the place of Jesus' birth. I think it is a supernatural light that initially guides them to Jerusalem and then reappears when it's time to guide them to the trip south to Bethlehem. And when they saw the star. They were overjoyed, and coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, this is the disturbance, not to go back to Herod, they were returned to a country about another route. Notice, Matthew wants us to see that who are the ones who worship the Messiah, not the Jews. Not the Jews, not the religious leaders, not any of the people you would expect. Who are the ones that worship the Messiah? Foreigners. And in Luke, shepherds, outcasts. Because, because God doesn't work according to our categories. God works according to the hearts of the recipient. God came for those who were willing to, to hear and willing to see and willing to respond. And if the religious leaders chose not to, then God's work will yet be done. It would have been a shock to the system of Jewish leader because, reader, excuse me, because these are the wrong people worshiping if he's the Messiah. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, none of us were smart, none of us were learned, none of us were popular, you know, God. God doesn't pick the popular kid on campus necessarily. He he picks the ones whose hearts are soft toward him, and that's who he chose. He 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 doesn't work the way we expect. He 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 works the way his perfect will commands, and that's the other thing I want you to see. His plan always works. As, as you look at the Christmas story, and especially Luke and Matthew, one of the things you realize is how many obstacles come up. I mean, there's Herod who wants to kill him. Next week we'll see that they have to run to Egypt to get away. There, there are all kinds of these obstacles. And, and you could think and read in it that God might lose heart and say, oh, no, it's not working out the way I planned. What will I do? But God's word and God's will are always accomplished. His will is inevitable. And so uh, Joseph and Mary just keep being faithful in all of their odd circumstances and God keeps sending the right people in all the weird situations and God brings his son to bring salvation to a broken world. And if God did that to bring Jesus, God does that in our lives as well. We we too quickly panic when things don't go the way we think they should. We we too quickly panic when we see some evil in the world around us, as if, oh, God said he wouldn't allow that. The reality is that that as long as we're on this earth until Jesus comes back, there, there's gonna be evil. There's going to be difficult. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And and we, we panic as if somehow, if things don't go the way we expect, that maybe God can't do it. But there's nothing that can stop God's will. And nothing that can stop God's plan. Sure, he had promised that the Messiah would come hundreds of years earlier through David and he had filled in what that meant through Isaiah four or five hundred years earlier. I mean, time doesn't matter to God on that level, but his will is absolutely sure and just because the circumstances aren't what you and I might think, we could expect that we dare not betray our lack of faith, by panicking. The reality is if we trust God and God is in control and God will give us our best, we can have peace no matter what, right? We'll still have sadness, we'll still have difficulty, but but we can have peace that comes from the confidence that he's in control. And in my years of pastoring here, one of the things that has touched my heart the most is these saints who've gone through unbelievably difficult things and yet because their faith ran so deep, they retained that peace no matter what. Because they knew God's plans always come to fruition. Matthew wants us to know that Messiah came in a way that Israel didn't expect. He, he came through people that Israel wouldn't respect. He accomplished His will in ways that, quite frankly, they would look down on. But God's will is sure. And His result of peace that to those who believe Him is sure for all who trust Him. The story of Christmas is a reminder that we desperately need, isn't it? That at a time when Israel was struggling, God was still at work. And God is still at work now. And if we trust Him, if we believe Him, we can trust that and live our lives in peace and obedience because we know who's in control and we know that he cares and we know that his plan is sure. Please pray with me. Father, we admit that sometimes we struggle with trusting you, especially when circumstances grow dark. When we don't see how your work is being done or it seems as though you're doing things in ways that don't make sense. But Father, if, if you can bring your son to earth in Bethlehem in a manger and have him announced by angels to shepherds and by a star to magi, you can do your work today. Lord, give us peace. Help us to trust. And, and in that trust, make us obedient children. In Jesus' name, amen.